Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Ben Osborne, UK Country Manager and Managing Director of Pfizer UK. Hello, I'm Amanda Coffey, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at the University of West of England, Bristol. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the annual Bolland Lecture, part of our Bristol Distinguished Address series of lectures. Welcome to our distinguished speaker, Ben Osborne from Pfizer UK, and also a very warm welcome to members of the Bolland family, who I know are joining us from around the world. The Bolland Lecture was established in 1976 to commemorate Dr. Robert Bolland, who held the post of the Director of Bristol Polytechnic from its foundation in 1969 until his death in 1974. Bristol Polytechnic gained university status in 1992, becoming the University of the West of England at Bristol. We are particularly delighted that this year's lecture is associated with Pfizer. For the obvious reasons, of course, given the global pandemic and the extraordinary global times that we've all been living through, but also because of a very personal association that Dr. Bolland had with Pfizer. Dr. Bolland was committed to the concept of practice in industry learning for students, particularly fitting given UE Bristol's ongoing commitment to the provision of practice-based learning. While head of department, Dr. Bolland placed students at Pfizer headquarters. His son recalls visits there with his father and being given tours of labs while his father met with Pfizer colleagues and Bristol Polytechnic students. And so to our event this evening. Our format will be an introduction to our speaker by our partner host this evening, followed by Ben's address. We will then have time for questions from the audience. You can submit questions throughout the event using the question and answer box. These will be moderated and published once the question and answer session begins. We will endeavour to get through as many questions as we can in the time. For those of you who use social media, please feel free to get involved on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Bristol Lectures. We are also recording the event to be uploaded to our media library in due course, where you can also view previous lectures. It now gives me great pleasure to hand over to Jaya Chakrabarti, Vice President of the Bristol Chamber of Commerce and West of England Initiative, to introduce our speaker. I hope you enjoy the event. Thank you very much, Amanda. Um, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here for the annual Bolland Lecture, um, especially kicking off such a fantastic array of speakers coming up um, uh, today as being the, the, the primary one I've been looking forward to. The West of England Initiative, which sits at the heart of Business West, is delighted to once again be supporting the Bristol Distinguished Address Series. And as Vice President of the Bristol Chambers of Commerce and Initiative, I'm honoured to be able to introduce Ben Osborne, the UK Country Manager and Managing Director for Pfizer UK since 2018, i.e. before the pandemic and all the way through so far. For those of you who do not know us, Business West is the largest chambers of commerce in the UK. We cover Bristol and Bath and Wiltshire, Gloucestershire. We represent and work with over 22,000 businesses. We lobby, we influence, we do our best to make sure that Bristol, Bath, the West of England, remain the best places to live and work for everyone here. It is a great honor to be able to welcome Ben to meet our business community today. Ben graduated from Leeds University and joined Pfizer in 1998. But by 2012, Ben was UK Head of Pfizer Oncology, shaping cancer policy. 
Four years later, Berman became the chief marketing officer operating across Europe, Japan, Korea, Austria, Austria, Australia, and New Zealand, leading on digital transformation and innovative partnerships across the whole sector. Now, when, it, when I look at the career of such a successful leader, it always makes me want to find out what drives such a person to achieve above and beyond, because there is always a story. Ben recently spoke passionately about his own purpose, his own personal person in life, uh, a purpose in life, and about transformative change rather than tinkering around with the edges. I learned actually on social media that Ben's own personal purpose has been hugely influenced by family as mine has as well, especially his 14-year-old son who lives with significant disabilities and epilepsy, and it has shaped Ben's approach to his career and his personal life. He's not prepared to sit on the sidelines. Ben is a board trustee of Young Epilepsy. He channels his passion for long distance running, which I can't do to save my life, um, into raising money for this and other courses really close to his heart. Needless to say, long distance runners know how to play the long game, which is really lucky because it's a quality we really, really need if we're going to win against this and future pandemics. On partnership, Ben has said, the challenges we all face are far too complex for one party to solve in the future. It will require all of us coming together and partnering in a way that we haven't done so in the past. Well, this he demonstrates perfectly in his role of president of the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry, which is the industry body that exists to make the UK the best place in the world for research and development of new medicines and vaccines. Indeed, the first of his priorities in that role is about building a more resilient NHS post-pandemic so that no patient is left behind. That, together with the aim to meet the challenges presented by antimicrobial resistance, environmental sustainability, I think you'll agree with me that we need more of this sort of corporate activism and partnership to fix what humanity has broken. Ben, thank you so much for joining us, and we're very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say um, that will inspire us all to action. There will be an opportunity for Q&A at the end for everybody. Ben, over to you. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Jaya, and uh, good evening, everyone. It's uh, a genuine honour and pleasure to join you all this uh, this evening and this year for the annual Bolin Lecture. Uh, thank you to everyone involved uh, in pulling together tonight's event, and a special thanks to Jaya and Amanda for their kind and generous words uh, up front. I hope that many of you have actually taken the opportunity to recharge your batteries over the summer uh, and the past 18 months where I'm sure we've all suffered from Zoom and Teams fatigue. And for me, September is always an exciting time of the year. It's a new academic year. It's a new school year, the gradual changing of the seasons. And it's an opportunity to really make good on those pre-summer promises as we head into the autumn. And during my recent summer holiday, I managed to take a break in, uh, in August with my family down in Cornwall. I found myself really reflecting and what's truly just been a whirlwind 18 months for all of us. For me and the team here at Pfizer, these have been the busiest, most intense, but most rewarding times of our career. And amongst the twists and turns, there are two moments that really stand out. The first was the phone call I took back in November of last year, where I learned of the results from our phase three clinical trial for our vaccine. It was both an exhilarating and emotional moment. And the second was weeks later, on the 8th of December, when Margaret Keenan became the first person in the world at 91 years old to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. In just 259 days, together with our partner BioNTech, we were able to develop, manufacture, and get authorization for a new COVID-19 vaccine. 
It's easy to forget just how extraordinary this moment was when we now see over 5 billion COVID-19 vaccines being administered globally. But what science has achieved in the last year has been nothing short of a major miracle. And that leads me to what I want to talk about this evening. There were lots of success factors, but as we come out of this phase of the pandemic and prepare for a future, I believe we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to not just learn from these lessons of the last 18 months, but really apply them across our society. For me, there are three building blocks that I'm going to talk about this evening. One, we must embrace a mission-led policy-making approach. Two, we must value scientific innovation. And three, we must reassess how we value our own health. And we must value the health of our nation as a national asset now. If we get these foundations right, incredible as it sounds, we can go even further than we've traveled in the last 18 months. I'd like to begin by talking about the power of mission-led policymaking. Thinking about the journey we've been on since the onset of the pandemic, one of the things that's left a lasting impression on me is this real importance of having a North Star for all of us to follow, a laser-like focus on achieving a shared common goal. The response to COVID-19 crystallizes this thinking, and particularly the approach taken by the government's UK Vaccine Task Force, the group that's really spearheaded our vaccination strategy, pulling in people from within government, the NHS, and from the wider life science sector in both academia and industry. And this group all came together at a pace and in a spirit of collaboration, innovation that we really needed to solve the pandemic. And I'm fortunate to work closely with this task force on a daily basis and believe that there are some really critical essential elements that can be embraced broadly in the future. First, the Vaccines Task Force was set up with an urgent, clear and compelling mission shared across all of government and beyond. And this allowed rapid action across previously siloed um, organisations and departments to ensure rapid decision making. It also provided a single front door for organisations like Pfizer, bringing together all parties to enable a fast and coordinated action. Second, the Vassing Task Force basically recognised that no single organisation could deliver the mission alone. And that to be effective, external contributors must be seen as an extension of their own team. Key subject matter experts were rapidly identified with early and open engagement to explore partnerships. And for Pfizer, we experienced a new level of transparency and information flow and communication with government, which ultimately helped ensure the smooth, consistent supply of a vaccine. And finally, the Vaccines Task Force adopted an attitude to risk that matched the size of potential benefits to our society from accelerating the availability of COVID-19 vaccines. In 2020 alone, Pfizer invested at risk over 2 billion of our own capital into our COVID programme. Yet without governments taking risk around the world and agreeing advanced purchase agreements for technologies that were still in development, we wouldn't have reached the position we are now with so many vaccines reaching patients around the world, saving many, many lives. And understanding the need to take risks for big rewards was built into the heart of government decision-making. Beyond the vaccine task force, there are also other examples of mission-led policymaking 
that we must draw on and learn for the future. The UK's COVID-19 recovery trial, for example, was quickly established following the discovery that dexamethasone, a widely used steroid, was reported to save many lives. Similarly, COVID-19 brought to public attention the UK's impressive genomic sequencing capabilities, driven by the common goal of needing to understand more about the disease scientists were rapidly trying to identify and learn more about. As we look to harness the lessons from the pandemic, the question front of mind for me is how can we apply mission-led thinking to other urgent health issues like antimicrobial resistance? In much the same way that the COVID crisis could not be addressed in isolation, and we relied on collaboration to find a route out of it, the world equally cannot tackle the growing threat of AMR without partnerships. There are many parallels to be drawn between AMR and COVID. AMR spreads quickly, it impacts people of all ages, and particularly those already facing health inequality. The threat of AMR provides evidence of the link between health and wealth, and the potential economic toll of inaction is considerable. In the UK, AMR is estimated to contribute to more than 2,000 deaths, and it costs the NHS nearly 100 million pounds every year. Globally, some 700,000 deaths are predicted to rise to nearly 10 million by 2050 if action is not taken right now. That's more people than die from cancer. And tackling such a considerable health challenge may seem daunting, but how we've worked together during the COVID-19 pandemic offers the blueprint for the future, uniting governments, academia and industry around a shared challenge that unites us all. And this brings me to my second point, the value of innovation. If COVID has taught me anything, it's that where health is concerned, we must think globally. Many of the causes of disease and ill health are common across borders, regardless of whether you're in Surbiton or Sub-Saharan Africa. This means many of the solutions require global collaboration, particularly if we think of the urgent health threats of today, like obesity. Embracing innovation was an important ingredient to the world's COVID-19 response, placing incredible faith in technologies like mRNA vaccines. But my overriding takeaway is that innovation comes in all manner, shapes and sizes. It doesn't always mean big advances and big investments such as buying new technologies. It's also adopting about adopting fresh approaches and applications to what's already there. It's about taking existing medicines and adapting them to different diseases. It's about taking lessons from one sector, one area and setting and about applying them to another. Pfizer's experiences from the pandemic highlight how a mix of science, data and technology really is shaping the healthcare landscape for good. Digital innovations in particular are changing how clinical trials are running, for instance. In our COVID-19 clinical trial program, we were analyzing data every four to six hours rather than the usual weeks or months. It's a considerable shift away from where we have been in the past. And as with many innovations forced by the pandemic, it's given the evidence that we need to change for the future. In the case of clinical trials, we've seen that they can be safely and effectively accelerated from decades down to single years. It's possible in the white heat of the pandemic. So can the same thinking now be applied elsewhere? 
And let's be clear, there is real benefit to our society for this. Improving how we run clinical trials offers the opportunity to achieve life-saving breakthroughs far faster than ever before, meaning we're able to give patients the treatment they need sooner and the benefits that this brings. Another shift in approach is how the NHS has adopted digital patient consultations. Pre-pandemic, remote consultations were rare, but the demands of lockdowns and the pressures of the pandemic on our hospitals and wider healthcare system have made them commonplace. We've all become much more familiar with doing things online rather than in person during the last 18 months. I'm sure with a few failures and technology issues along the way. And while there's still tremendous value in engaging face-to-face, -face, I really believe it's vital now that we don't just default to the old normal as we hopefully exit the pandemic, but that we look afresh to what's the best way of doing things. Utilizing existing technologies or adapting well-worn practices will be key. By better supporting and embracing innovation of all forms, shapes and sizes, the UK now has a once in a generation opportunity to become a global leader in life sciences and transform the lives of millions of patients. It was for this reason that I think the government was right to place innovation at the heart of the recently published vision for life sciences in the UK. Seeing Margaret Kiernan receive her first dose of our vaccine was a proud and humbling moment. But I see no reason why in the future, the UK patients shouldn't be first to receive life-changing breakthroughs. We've got the raw materials here. We've got a leading life science base. We've got academia. We've got well-known universities. We've got excellent healthcare systems with a rich data set that ultimately can deliver these breakthroughs. And innovation lies at the heart of this wish. And the government now has a golden opportunity to embrace it. Which brings me to my final point about thinking and resetting the health of our nation as a national asset. Earlier, I spoke of two memorable moments from the last 18 months. And alongside a sense of pride, relief and gratitude, what these two moments have brought home is just how important our health is and how much we value staying healthy, particularly when faced with the immediate threat of a pandemic. The threat and impact of COVID has also highlighted how interwoven our health is with other aspects of our lives, our jobs, our hobbies, even our friendships. Without good health, we cannot live well. Health and wealth are intrinsically linked and COVID has really magnified and shone a light on this connection. The economic toll of COVID is unparalleled in the modern era. The World Bank estimates that since the start of the pandemic, just 18 months ago, there's been a $10.3 trillion loss in output. That's nearly four times the UK's entire economy measured by GDP. But this pales into insignificance when we consider the toll on human life. The 4.5 million lives lost globally. And even before the pandemic, there was a wealth of compelling evidence to highlight not just the link between health and wealth, but also the benefit of greater investment in preventative healthcare. Estimates suggest that for every pound we spend on public health interventions, there's an average 14 pounds of benefit to a wider society. Studies also show a 1% fall in economic um, in employment leads to a 2% increase in the prevalence of chronic disease. And despite this evidence, 
the UK's total public funding for healthcare and preventive healthcare is only 5%. This translates as 97 million a year spent on treating disease and only 8 billion on preventing them. Research also tells us that preventative interventions are rarely implemented to their full potential. There may be many reasons for this, but I think often these interventions uh, that support people's long-term health don't show the benefit for many, many years and perhaps decades. And this doesn't easily align with the nature, demands and drivers of our political cycle. Build Back Better has become one of the political soundbites in recent months. And when it comes to healthcare, I believe we must be challenging this orthodoxy and reimagining how we value healthcare. There are immediate actions that the UK government can take to demonstrate its commitment to improving health and improving our healthcare resilience including setting health improvements as a core aim of government policy and placing our nation's health on a par with GDP. In fact, solid foundations have already been set here. Dame Sally Davis, the former chief medical officer, has done a fantastic job in setting out her vision for improving health outcomes in her report, Health 2040. And we may have learned a lot from our experiences of COVID, but there's also much work that came before this that we must draw on for inspiration. So in conclusion, COVID has really shone a light on countless issues. It's given us all plenty of time to pause and reflect on what is really important in our lives. Yet in the face of considerable challenge, the world has witnessed some truly remarkable feats of science and human resilience. Frontline healthcare professionals have worked valiantly to the stick. People have sacrificed individual liberties for the public good. And not just one, but we now have four COVID-19 vaccines that have been developed, manufactured, trialled, approved, and now rolled out by the NHS at breakneck speed. We've witnessed governments and the private public sector operating in ways we've never seen before, embracing partnerships and collaboration together to deliver on common goals. And when Pfizer started our COVID journey, we didn't know where it would take us, whether we would be successful, but we were driven by a common belief that science will win. And when I took that phone call in November, and when I saw Margaret Keenan take her seat to receive the first dose of a vaccine, that belief had been validated. Science had indeed won. When it comes to science, what's happened has been nothing short of miraculous. But the way we've worked, the lessons we've learned and the experiences we've also had must be a blueprint for the future. By adopting a mission-led approach, by valuing innovation and reimagining how we value healthcare, we can build on this progress and ultimately deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. So now is the time to transform, not tinker. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ben, for such a, a thoughtful and thought-provoking um, talk. And in particular, I think it's given us lots to um, reflect on in terms of innovation, risk, uh, mission-led collaboration, partnership, which is also important in terms of the ways in which we go about, as you say, transformation rather than tinkering. So now's the time where we'll have the opportunity to engage in, in further discussion with Ben and delighted already to see that there are a number of questions coming through from our audience. 
Um, just a reminder to colleagues watching that please feel free to continue to submit questions and we will um, get through as many of the questions as we can in the time that we have available. Um, so uh, without further ado, Ben, I'd, I'd like to start with a really general question, which was a question that I would have asked you, but actually it's come through on the, the questions from the audience as well, which is something about your own personal reflections, about what you've learnt about yourself and about your leadership and about leadership in general over the last 18 months. So a personal reflection on your own leadership journey and, and personal journey during the last 18 months. Yeah, it's it's been the the most incredible period of, of my career, and I, I I don't think it will be matched by anything I will see in the in, in the future. Um, it's tested me, it's tried me more than I think I've ever ever faced personally and professionally before. Um, I think what I've I've really learned though uh, is as follows: that you know our success. Um, is not down to to any individual. And whilst I have the, the privilege of of leading uh, Pfizer during this most extraordinary time, actually, the success that we've had as an organisation, the success that we've seen more broadly, is down to many many individuals. In fact, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of colleagues uh, across Pfizer and, and BioNTech. And I cannot control what each of those individuals do, what they say, what they do every day. But what I can control is uh, the culture, and I can shape the culture, I can set the, the vision, and really then empower really, really talented colleagues across our whole organisation to bring their very best self to work every single day. Um, I think in the past, I probably got much more into the, the detail, much more into the weeds on, on things. And frankly, through this period, I, I simply couldn't do that. It, it would not have led to, uh, to success, uh, and I couldn't take on all the detail. And I really pull myself away from from that i think that's the, the first thing the second thing is is resilience um i mean i've probably worked as many colleagues have you know not just in in pfizer across the nhs across academia i'm sure more hours than we've ever ever worked before uh, and that's been critical um but you've also really really got to take time to look after yourself uh, and your family uh, around you and I've really, really sought to make sure my own uh, health and wellness has, has been personally a priority for, for me. So at times when it would have been very easy to sit there and uh, you know, perhaps you know, deal with another few emails, um, actually quite often what I've done is, is take time away, either with my family um, or I've gone out for a run because I just needed the mental space and the break to get away from the pressures day to day. To make sure when I then do come back to it, either later on the evening or the following day, I've got the uh, the energy levels that's going to be required to uh, you know deliver this uh, this work. Again, I think the learning from the from the past is you know often many of us thought that you know the more hours um, you, you put in, the more you got out of it. Um, there's you know there's an element of truth in in that, but it, it it's it's much more I think a balance now. Um, and you can't sustain this type of pace long term without really looking at that sort of work life uh, life balance. I think they would be the, the, the two key uh, key reflections. Um, I still haven't really had the opportunity to, to deeply, deeply pause and reflect, though. And you know, that's something I really intend to do in the coming months. Okay. Thanks very much, Ben. And just a reminder to our audience, as the questions are, are popping up on your screens, do feel free to, to vote for those or to highlight those that you think you particularly like us to turn to. 
We've had a, a, a couple of questions actually, Ben, around, around vaccines really. Um, and I think I might sort of take them both together. So we've got, how do we deal with uh, accusations about the unequal supply of vaccines? Obviously something that's very much been on the top of our agenda, especially to, to poorer countries. Yeah. And also a kind of subsidiary question, which is really about disinformation and vaccine hesitancy and whose role it is really to, to manage that disinformation, particularly in relation to kind of a necessary death. So I wonder whether you could reflect a little bit on the kind of the vaccine landscape, I guess, that we're now in and, and something about some of those challenging aspects. And obviously the work that you and colleagues have been doing have been particularly yeah. challenging, but there's, there's a much wider context there that, that you will certainly, I'm sure, have some reflections on. Yeah, sure. Again, two absolutely critical, critical points. Um, the first around vaccine uh, equity. As we started this, this endeavour, um, we knew that and we believed that, you know, we were only going to come out of this uh, pandemic across the globe if our vaccine reached every corner of the, of the world. Um, as I said earlier on, you know, we, we, you have to you have to be able to get a, a vaccine to Surbiton in the same way as, as sub-Saharan Africa, um, because none of us are safe unless all of us are ultimately uh, safe and, uh, and protected. Now, I think the realities are that uh, very early on, um, many of the uh, Western world and many of the Western countries were much faster to uh, sign agreements with organizations like Pfizer and, uh, and other companies. And they were out of the gates uh, much quicker, unfortunately. But we recognized that um, fairly swiftly. And so we then started to make some, some critical decisions uh, across our organization. The first is um, around pricing. Um, we were going to have a tiered pricing to the way that we looked at our vaccines um, for developed nations. Uh, it would be essentially you know, what we describe as the, the, the price of a meal. Uh, if you were to go to a restaurant, um, what you would pay for uh, you know, a, a main course meal. But for OECD low and middle income countries, um, what we were going to do is to price that cost. Uh, we were not going to profit at all from, uh, from this. And alongside that, we were going to uh, proactively make sure that despite um, some agreements not being in place with the developing nations, we were going to hold vaccine for them. And so we made a very public commitment that 2 billion doses of our vaccine were going to reach low and low middle income uh, countries around the, uh, around the world. And that work has already started uh, right now. Um, now we still have a long way to go. We are in a privileged position uh, here in the UK that we have, you know, I think it's almost 88% now of our population with, uh, with two doses. Many countries around the world are very low, um, double digit or even single digits. Uh, and that's something we, we must address. What I will flag is it's not just about uh, vaccine supply. In fact, the latest data, from the most reliable source, uh, an organization called Airfinity, suggests that there'll be over 11 billion doses available this year. And that's, that's more than enough to, to reach across the, uh, the population this year and, uh, and through uh, next, and that figure will, uh, will only increase. But it's addressing um, infrastructure and making sure that many of these developing nations have the healthcare system uh, and the logistics in place um, to safely uh, distribute and deploy that, that vaccine. 
And then also, and it leads me actually onto the, the, the second part of the, the question, um, which I sort of take as, as vaccine hesitancy um, and some of the misinformation. Unfortunately, some of the um, poorest nations around the world have some of the lowest levels of vaccine uptake, not just on COVID-19 vaccines, but historically um, across a, a range of different uh, vaccines. And that comes from some very long, deep-seated um, beliefs uh, and, and cultural uh, beliefs uh, often. It's a conversation that we've had locally here in the in the UK with government right from the from the very very start. Um, and I can't sit here and say that unfortunately there's a magic wand that we can uh, wave over this. But I, I'd offer the, the following. Firstly, I'm always delighted when people challenge me uh, and and ask you know the really probing, thoughtful questions about vaccines and are they safe? How can they work was so quickly uh, developed when it would normally take ten years? because it's an opportunity to talk through the extremely rigorous uh, development uh, steps, the regulatory steps and the independence that goes with developing and authorizing a vaccine. That independence from Pfizer, from AstraZeneca, from other companies, that independence from the NHS and from, uh, from government. Um, and that gives me a level of, uh, of reassurance. The other piece, though, is there is a huge, huge amount of, of misinformation uh, out there. And what we have sought to do with the NHS and with, with government is to work with tech companies uh, to really help them to ensure that they've got the right, timely, accurate, uh, truthful information at the right time as swiftly as we possibly can. And to highlight that, that misinformation, um, but sadly, it is so prevalent across all of the different particular social media channels that it's like a, a sort of whack-a-mole. As soon as you, you, know, you get rid of, uh, of one YouTube video, there's another, there's another popping up. And so I think this is, this is going to be a challenge that we're going to face for, uh, for many, many years uh, to, uh, to come. Um, but again, I go back to, to the evidence that after the provision of clean water and sanitation, the single most effective public health intervention any government can make around the world is the provision of vaccines uh, and a covid vaccine is is no different uh, there so a huge amount and then the final uh, piece i would uh, would offer is we recognized you know it would be very easy for people like myself um government officials nhs officials um to be talking publicly uh, about this um but unfortunately we are the very people that, that are not trusted, unfortunately. And so what we've uh, recognized is in each community, in local communities, whether that's you know the local religious leader, uh, the local pub landlord, the local sports leader, there are individuals who are deeply trusted and will always be trusted in their society. And we need to work and partner with them to make sure that they have the right information, the accurate information, that they can then help communicate communicate across their community and society. And I think what we've seen is some very, very tailored focused programs actually have led to some dramatic uptakes in, uh, in local communities where we would have perhaps expected uh, more challenge. Thanks very much, Ben. There's a, an, another question here on the vaccine and then, then we'll move on, I think. But um, 
any reflections on the, the differences between the UK vaccine programme and other, and other countries? Obviously, we've, we've, we've heard a lot about how successful the UK vaccine programme has been and the, the figures that you've just given us indicate that. But do you have any reflections on you know, why is it that we have been able to do what we've done over a, a lot of other comparable countries? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think much of the credit goes to uh, Dame Kate Bingham, uh, who was the, the chair of the, uh, the Vaccines Task Force, as we all know. And she came in with a very different mindset. Um, and she came in with a mindset of collaboration uh, across government, NHS, industry, academia, but also one of agility and a recognition that government were going to need to take some investment risks in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done uh, traditionally. Um, Kate has deep experience in, the, in this from her sort of uh, her day job. And she, with many experts, recognized that um, this was a high risk endeavor. You know, not all of this innovation and this technology, this science was going to work. And so they needed to uh, understand where it was most likely to be successful, where the science, where they had the deepest confidence and then frankly, place some bets, some financial bets, some very big financial bets that those um, companies, those academic collaborations were going to be successful. Because what that meant is by uh, making those decisions early, um, the UK was uh, well, well positioned to uh, take supply uh, rapidly uh, once the, uh, the regulatory authorization uh, was, uh, was in place. So I think that's the, the first uh, piece. The second piece is I, I think credit must go to, to the NHS. I and mean, what the NHS has, uh, has done has been just absolutely miraculous, both in terms of continuing to treat the, uh, the sick and the unwell, not just with COVID, but across many different disease areas, but to deliver you know, so many vaccines across our society, you know, from major cities through to the most rural of our, our populations across all different all different age age ranges uh, and they did so in in collaboration and knowing that speed was absolutely critical here um and so again i think you know the nhs is pretty unique on a global basis we have uh, a healthcare system that is essentially one across all nations uh, and that again was tremendously helpful in terms of rapidly making decisions but then also deploying that vaccine in a consistent way across uh, all four nations and for all four healthcare systems. So yeah, they would be the, the immediate uh, re reflections. Um, and I would finally uh, say, it, it comes back to the, the piece that I mentioned uh, during my, my talk about a mission-led approach. There was a very, very clear mission uh, at the start of this. Um, no one needed to lay it out in detail for each of the individual partners. We all got it. We all knew instinctively the role that we had to play. Uh, and we've collaborated in a way like, like never before. And I hope that that continues for the future now. That brings us on to another question very nicely, Ben, which again is a question about reflection, really. So looking back over the past 18 months, um, if you could go back, would you have done anything differently? Um... I, I mean, there, there's there's lots of, of of little details that you you look at, and 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 sometimes you you do sweat that that small stuff. Uh, I I don't think there are any major 
major decisions uh, that we've we've taken um, that we would have done differently at, at the time. And I think what we need to remember, and I say that because actually none of us, government, NHS, Pfizer, myself, had ever faced this before. Uh, we didn't necessarily always have the information that we then subsequently had, you know, uh, months uh, down the uh, down the line. So many of the decisions that we were taking were being made in in real time, um, sometimes with with not all of the not all of the data. I, I should reinforce that was never the case with the with the clinical data. We always had uh, full data uh, and full sight of the safety and efficacy side. I mean, just some of the uh, you know supply data coming through, some of the challenges that we uh, we had uh, in terms of uh, of deliveries. Um, it, it it is much easier now in in hindsight to look, um, but at the time, I, I think um, we got the majority of things right. To be honest. Thanks. And um, obviously talking about looking backwards, but also there's some questions that we've had from the audience around looking forwards and around lessons learned. So perhaps we'll move on to some of those if that's OK. I'm going to read sure. out this question. Actually. There's a really nice bit at the beginning, which is um, very proud of the achievements of all our scientists and industry in this pandemic. Well done. Um, and then the question that follows that is, can science get humanity ready for or help prevent the next pandemic. So I guess it's something around lessons learned about how we might do things differently. I uh, simply put, we, we have to, um, and that can't just be UK government alone. Um, I'm very, very positive that now we are looking at this through the lens of, of the G7 and even wider collaboration across the globe because We've seen the devastating impact of this pandemic. And unfortunately, it is very likely that in many of our lifetimes, we will see some form of other pandemic. Now, it may not be the scale, the size, the type of uh, a virus that we've seen in, in COVID, but we are going to face some significant health challenges. And you now come back to the point that I made around antimicrobial resistance. That, that is, the, that is the, the sleeping giant, is the chronic COVID in, in my mind unless we get on top of that and we really do ensure that we uh, rid our society and rid our healthcare systems of antimicrobial resistance then the very very simple operations and procedures that we take for granted such as a hip operation will, will not be possible um, in the in, in the future um, that, that, that surgery would simply not be be, be feasible because the risk of, of infection afterward or the likelihood would be would be so so high um, and many of the other innovations across uh, science uh, again would not yield benefit because unfortunately we would see uh, society and individuals brought down by uh, many of these uh, these microbes um, so yes um, I think we, we can and I think there is um, tremendous amount that uh, that can be done and, and it is already starting uh, right now and we're around the table with government uh, and at the highest levels globally to uh, to play a part in the, in that um, we've shown that science can um, move rapidly. You know, who would have thought that we could develop a vaccine in 259 days when that time frame would normally be 10 years? And we weren't alone. You know, we've had you know, four companies move in a, in a similar time frame, um, all producing a safe and effective vaccine. So we've we've done it now. We need to now take those learnings for the future. Okay, 
And that brings us on very nicely to a couple of other questions that we've had, which really extend or give you an opportunity, I think, Ben, to extend what you've just been talking about. So you've obviously mentioned um, AMR and the challenges and the opportunities there in relation to science. But we've had a question about what other health challenges might benefit from that mission based approach. So that's something about are there other areas that we might want to explore? And that fits in very nicely with another question that we've had, which is quite rightly, we've all been very focused on COVID. Um, but there's a little bit about, you know, what should we be focusing on next? What should science be focusing on? What are you going to be focusing on? So there's really thinking about, again, how we use that mission approach and, and think about where we go next. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, I think the, the mission-led approach uh, can actually be applied broadly uh, across across healthcare and, and, and all disease areas. But, but I recognise that we can't take a vaccine-like or vaccines task force-like resource approach to, to all of the disease areas that impacts our society. That's just simply not, not affordable. We don't have the resources across government, industry, academia or, or others. I think but the mindset can be taken. And so I'll split it into two parts. I think in terms of the, the big disease areas that are impacting our society, um, one is, I go back to antimicrobial resistance. We must take a mission-led collaborative approach globally uh, towards, towards that. We have to look now at how we essentially age with health and particularly around some of the neurological conditions, dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, I think just the tip of the iceberg and the impact of that in terms of an individual's health, but then the wider impact on society, social care, uh, and their, uh, their families as well. So that would be number, uh, number two. I think cardiovascular disease, uh, despite some of the incredible scientific advances um, of, uh, of recent years, is still a significant uh, burden um, from a mortality point of view. And I think there is uh, a lot that we can, can do uh, to bring science to bear on, uh, on that. And then the final one, unfortunately, um, is, uh, is cancer. Um, it continues you know, across a range of different tumor types to be a devastating condition. Uh, unfortunately, we still have many cancers that are uncurable uh, and some that are you know, barely treatable, to be honest. Um, but as we're now learning much more about cancer and the genetic drivers of, of that, I hope that then, you know, the scientists in our labs and then, you, you know, academia and, and others can really take that technology and information to uh, develop treatments for the future. But we, we mustn't forget the, the rarer conditions, some of those conditions that impact, um, you know, smaller numbers in our society. You know, Joe mentioned at the beginning, my son, uh, unfortunately, lives with a very, very rare form of, of epilepsy. Um, now, that will never be a widespread government or NHS focus. I, I recognise that. Um, very few companies invest significantly in that area. But that mindset of collaboration, that mindset of agility, and that mindset of science will ultimately win, and how fast can we take the science, can absolutely be now played out with these uh, these rarer conditions as uh, as well. Um, so they may not get quite the same level of, of resource, um, but I think the mindset can take us a, a long way uh, down that in the future. Thanks, Ben. And obviously, that's very much reflecting on on the life sciences and, and the ways in which you know coming coming together and having that real focus delivered huge benefits. We've had a question in around 
you know, are there are there lessons that other sectors could take forward, particularly perhaps some of those sectors that have been hit by the pandemic? So I wonder whether there's any reflections on the, the approach that you've described that might have, you know, a beyond science kind of uh, application, I guess. Oh, yeah. I find it incredibly difficult to answer that, um, honestly, with any real clarity. I'm just not close enough and I don't think I would do justice to uh, other sectors, I'd have people, uh, I'm sure, on Twitter say, no, that, that's that's not true. Um, listen, I, I, I think um, this mindset of, uh, of, of collaboration, I, I think we can all learn from, um, you know, not, not just in our professional lives, our academic lives, but also in our, our personal lives as well. Uh, you know, I've seen how just, you know, the street that I live in, um, you know, many residents just didn't know each other and they were just a few doors down, but they connected, they supported each other in a way that we probably never would have uh, if it wasn't for uh, the pandemic. And that that collaboration, that support, that more societal mindset, uh, I think is something that we all can absolutely take forward. And I think that business has a really critical role to play uh, in that. And that really does go uh, cross uh, cross sector. That's a, a, a great answer without stepping on the toes of other sectors that you're not so familiar with. Um, I want to bring you back, if I may, to um, the, the sort of the, the speed really with which, you know, we, we rolled out the vaccine and the vaccine was developed. Um, and also something that you mentioned in your talk around risk and the kind of risk to benefit, I guess, and, and how innovation is, is around risk and is around failure as well, actually, because that's how innovations are made. And yeah. we've had a question here, really, I guess, about how do you do some of that balancing work? Um, the question is really around, you know, fast drug testing um, has been beneficial um, and you've reflected yourself on, on clinical trials getting quicker. Um, but how do we balance that with, with longer term risk of the unknown, I guess. And, and the example that's been given by um, our questioner is really a, an example like thalidomide, where actually, you know, we do things with the best of intentions, but then there are that we don't know what we don't know. And, and how can how do we balance that risk versus benefit, I guess, is what we're, we're really asking. So I wonder whether you had any reflections on that. Yeah, I, I mean, let me start off by saying thalidomide has had a devastating impact clearly on on many individuals. Um, and has had you know a really really significant consequence for for them uh, and, and their families. Um, I genuinely believe though that that was a a very different time. Uh, it was many decades ago, and I think uh, industry, government, regulators uh, learned a huge huge amount uh, from uh, from that. Um, it is devastating, and you know. I think many wish you could, you know, could clearly go back and, and and change things, but sadly we can't. But what we can do, and what I have seen, is that future decisions um, can look very differently to those that were obviously taken around around thalidomide. Let me bring it to life for you in terms of some of the risks that I think are are, are appropriate. Um, so, one of the things that we did was to significantly invest in our manufacturing uh, capacity um, to the tune of, in fact, billions of, of dollars at a point in time when we didn't even know whether we were going to have a successful vaccine. Now, there was no safety issue uh, around that. That was purely a, a financial risk. And it was one that we were prepared to take. And we've seen many other companies take as, as well. So rather than waiting for the full clinical trial program to read out, 
then take your, uh, your decision. We actually invested uh, much earlier on in the, in the process. Another simple one would be um, you know, the first um, uh, clinical trial that we did from a phase three uh, perspective. Typically what would happen is the regulators would assess the data to date and would say, okay, you can now begin your, your phase three study. We would take that decision and we would then work to understand where we were going to run our trial. And this could take weeks, if not months in, in some cases to begin a, a study. In this situation, what we did um, was we decided ahead of time, ahead of that decision, exactly where we were going to run that study. We took uh, the development vaccine to the sites. We had patients lined up, we had clinics lined up so that when that authorization came in and they were satisfied independently that we could move into that next phase. The next patient or the first patient was essentially um, taken into the clinical trial within a matter of hours rather than potential weeks or, or, or months. So for us, um, the risk is really about a, a financial risk. Um, it is never, ever about, about patient safety. Um, and that, I think, will, will, it, will always, it will always be the case. Um, and it has, it has to be the, uh, the case. Okay. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm going to move you on to a different topic now, if I may, Ben. Um, really important topic. So the question is that we, we've seen throughout the last 18 months that women scientists have demonstrated excellence in the development of the vaccines and in the vaccine programmes. Um, and I wondered whether you had any reflections really about how do we attract more women into STEM, which is obviously something we're really passionate about at UE in terms of making sure that, you know, that we, we open um, stem up to as many diverse thinkers as possible and to ensure that women are in that mix. So how do how do we encourage more girls and women into STEM? Yeah, great, great question. Something I'm passionate about. I've got a six year old daughter. I would love her to be a, a scientist or a healthcare professional in the in, in the future. What's really interesting is just, you know, from my own daughter's point of view, just the conversations that we've had around the, the family dinner table and, you know, picking things up on the, on the news, et cetera, just hearing about it, talking about it, and seeing some of these role models uh, has created a, a sort of very different sort of dynamic to, uh, to, to the conversation. So I think it has to start at a really, really early age in our educational system. You know, we've got to, rather than waiting uh, till uh, women, young girls are making decisions about what university degree or even what A-levels, We've got to inspire um, right from the youngest age. So when they're going into, into nursery, um, when they're going into, into primary school, we've got to help to educate that gender is not a, a driver of whether you're going to go into, in, into science or, or not. And it mustn't be a barrier to whether you're, you're successful or, or, or not. So I think there's a, there's a really critical role uh, there that we, we need to do in terms of um, the educational system. A large part of that, I think, is making sure that we've got role models um, publicly. I mean, I'm delighted now, you know, the, the leader of the MHRA is a female, June Rain. The leader of NICE, Gillian Lang, uh, is, is a female. The leader of the NHS now, Amanda Pritchard, is a female. Uh, we've got female health ministers. I mean, we've got some fantastic role models now that I think we can uh, all play a part in uh, helping younger generations to, uh, to be uh, in inspired in. 
Um, but I think beyond that, we've got to really, really now look across our society and really ask the tough questions about the barriers, um, perceived or real, that, that, that exist um, and really take some very considered, focused action to, uh, to remove those. And I look at it not just from a gender perspective, but across a, a range, of, a wider range of, of diversity. There are still far too uh, few um, ethnic minorities, um, you know, playing leading roles in in science and organisations, you know, like like Pfizer um, and some of the major academic institutions across the, the UK. So, again, I think we've we've got to really now learn from uh, the, the last eighteen months um, and, and and take very considered actions. You know, it goes back to that mission-led approach. If we make it a focus, if we make it a, prior, a priority for our society uh, and we put the right mindset behind it, I think we can change. Thanks, Ben. So we, we've had a question come in really, which is a further reflection and I think fits in very nicely with the kind of mission approach, which is you mentioned earlier on in your talk around, around manufacturing capacity. Um, and the question has actually come in from, from Jaya, which is around supply chain resilience being critical to that and being able to respond quickly. So it's something about, you know, again, it's around collaboration and partnership, isn't it? So just any observations, I think particularly interesting for our business uh, audience uh, watching. How did Pfizer approach or how have you approached the whole piece around manufacturing capacity and supply chain resilience? Yeah, um, so we, we started off with, um, a, a mindset that this was going to be really, really tough. This was going to be incredibly challenging, not just the development side, but the actual, the scale up side. And we were going to need to do it quicker than ever before. And you've got, I, and there's many approaches you, you can take, but the, there's, there's two uh, sort of, um, I guess, schools of thought. One is you really consolidate your, uh, your resource, your expertise, and you scale from one or two locations or you go for a much more dispersed uh, model um, and, and get scale in, in that way. And as we looked at it and we analyzed, we believed that the, the former model, the consolidated model was going to serve our global population best. And the reason I say that is because it had fewer uh, opportunities for issues to, to arise. I mean, frankly, if you've got two factories versus 10 factories, there are just fewer um, you know, opportunities. There are um, fewer areas that you could have a, a challenge with. Now, on the flip side, if you do have an issue, then potentially during that earlier phase, then it could have a, a bigger impact. Um, but we were, we were confident from our experience with developing and manufacturing other vaccines that we had the basic infrastructure in place. So we took a very uh, consolidated uh, approach and scaled um, within just two locations uh, globally. What we also did then was worked with uh, a range of, of, of suppliers. We have, I think it's about 186 uh, ingredients to our vaccine that come from something like 86 different uh, countries, uh, sorry, 86 different suppliers over 20 countries. We could not be in a position where we were just reliant on one individual uh, manufacturer or, or supplier. So we invested as an organization, we collaborated, we gave expertise and resource to help many of these uh, organizations uh, scale up them, uh, themselves uh, as well, so that we knew that we had uh, certainty 
uh, and confidence in, uh, in our supply chain. And then we worked very closely with government, uh, both here in the UK and around the world to flag where our big risks were, uh, where we could have, have challenge and what support we needed uh, from them to ensure the smooth flow of materials, not just into the UK, but broadly around the, uh, around the, around the world. Um, again, it, it goes back to, uh, to collaboration. I think the question that now is on the front of, of many people's minds is to what extent should the UK now be building that own capacity and resistance onshore versus a reliance on, on other nations? And it's particularly topical, obviously, given you know we're now uh, post-Brexit. Uh, post my belief is from what we have seen, uh, not just from Pfizer, but from all of the different vaccine programmes and wider innovations is no single country can solve this themselves and no single country can ever develop a full end-to-end -end supply chain of a technology that is going to be totally resilient actually resilience really comes from making sure you are collaborating uh, more broadly um, across the across the globe so i think we've got to have a global mindset now as we look to the future with supply resilience we need to make sure that, you know, for the critical components, we have got um, sufficient supplies infrastructure within the uh, within the UK. Uh, but that doesn't mean stockpiling everything we uh, we possibly can. OK, thanks very much, Ben. Um, we've got a, a question here that, that, that starts off just with a with a thank you, really. Thank you for an enlightening lecture. And the question is really around, around leadership, which I guess is, is underpinning a lot of what you've talked about today. Um, so the question is, what one piece of advice would you offer a, a young leader starting out? And I know that we've got some some students uh, who are in the audience, and so I'm, I'm sure that they'll be particularly interested in, in hearing your answer here. So piece of advice for young leaders starting out. Yeah, my one advice, uh, piece of advice here um, would be know yourself and, and be yourself. Um, the mistake I made early on in, in my career as a leader and through perhaps one or two of my first managerial uh, roles, I worked for some great people. Um, and each time I changed manager or changed roles, what I noticed now or noticed a few years back um, is I started to try and mimic their leadership style, um, sometimes their tone, their behaviours. And I started to really lose that sense of who, who am I? What am I a, a, as a leader? Uh, and actually, it was when I read uh, a paper, and I would encourage, in fact, I talked about it with a, a, one of our interns today, uh, a paper called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You? Uh, it's in HBR. It's by a, um, a business guru called Rob Goffey. And that really talks about authenticity and how we all uh, really value authenticity in, in the leaders that we respect and, and follow. And from reading that paper, actually, I became really much more comfortable with my true self and what I really believe in, what's important to uh, to me. And so now, as I talk to to our young leaders and uh, more more broadly uh, to uh, to graduates, um, I say, look, take the time to really understand what are the three or four um, values, behaviours, traits that you really really believe in that are true to you. And then make sure you demonstrate them. Learn from other leaders, absolutely. Please do, 
but don't try mimicking and copying others because ultimately that's an act and you can do that for a short space of time, but it gets really, really tiring after a while. Piece of advice, Ben, thank you so much. We're coming towards the end and we're gonna let you off the hook in a moment or two, but a couple of final questions. Um, final question on the vaccine and then a couple of other questions just to finish. Um, question on the vaccine is, do you think it's possible in the future for a vaccine to be produced that will only need to be administered once, giving lifelong protection against COVID? So I guess it's bringing us right back to where we started um, and something again, reflecting on, on, I guess, the journey that we're still on in relation to, to COVID and vaccination. Yeah, um, so my hope and think, I guess, are different here. My, my hope is, you know, clearly we, we can eradicate uh, COVID uh, across the across the globe and, and here in the UK um, through through vaccination. Um, undoubtedly, though, we're going to need uh, future vaccinations for, for some time yet. Uh, I'm not going to put a time frame on that because that's for, you know, JCVI and, and others government to, to decide. I think we have learned a huge amount about uh, vaccine technology, but also about uh, how the COVID virus behaves, the genetic drivers of that, some of the variants over the last 18 months, and the UK has played a really critical role in, the, in that. And I hope that we will then take that learning and continue to really uh, invest, not just as Pfizer, but broadly across life sciences, government and, uh, and others to, uh, to try and get to, uh, to that place where either it is, you know, a, a one-off shot or it's um, a case where we've actually eradicated the, uh, the disease. Um, but it's, it's, it's not something I think we're, we're, we're close to right now, unfortunately. Okay. So finally, I, I guess I'm going to take us back to reflecting on the fact that we're doing this, this talk um, virtually rather than in person and a reminder I guess of the extraordinary um, 18 months that we've all been through and we've all spent probably more time than we thought we would uh, in our offices or in our homes um, staring at screens and there's a there's a question to finish with but but please feel free to answer it in any way you wish um, which is um, obviously we can see a wall behind you um, with with beautiful colorful prints and uh, the question is only if appropriate uh, what's the colourful print behind you and is it significant? But it, it obviously brings us back to a much more fundamental, I guess, point about the fact that we've been through this extraordinary journey and, and have got much more used to other people's houses and homes than maybe we thought we ever would. But uh, I don't know whether you want to say anything, Ben, about what's behind you on the wall. Yeah, no, I will. I will do. And thank you for the question, whoever asked that. I, I really I really like that. And a great one to uh, to finish on. You know, when I, when we first came into the pandemic, we were all running Zoom calls and Teams calls. Um, I had a pretty bland background, uh, to be honest. And my wife gave me some feedback. In fact, it was actually, I'd done some media work. She said, that, that looks dreadful, Ben. You, you know, we've got to sort that out. And then I started to recognize that in many Zoom calls and team calls that I was having, I was genuinely interested with what I could see in, you know, the, the snippet of someone's life, you know, whether that be their living room or the, you know, the kitchen that they were working from. And, you know, we had some great conversations about pieces of art, books that you could see, or, or, or just things that were in the, in the room. So um, I decided that I was going to, you know, try and have a little bit of a, a better backdrop. And so the things behind me, the, the signs will win um, picture, um, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter uh, made, uh, and that was a sign that she put in the uh, in the window of our house 
Um, and I took that down a little while back and put that in a frame. And it's something I will treasure, I think, for forever. Um, the picture up above that is my uh, my son. Um, he was mentioned by Jaya at the beginning. Um, he's what inspires me every single day. Um, and it's what really, really keeps me uh, keeps me going. My uh, little map on the on the right there, that was uh, a map of a 50 mile race I did. And again, it, it keeps reminding me that don't, yes, we're doing a, you know, a really important work and there's lots to do, but don't sit in front of the screen all day. Don't lose sight of the fact that you've got to get out for, uh, for a run and that's a healthy reminder. And then finally, the, the B behind me um, is uh, actually a, uh, a Ben Ayn, uh print that a, a very good friend of mine uh, bought me for a, a major birthday of mine uh, a few years back. Um, and I just thought it's super bright and it's, do you know what, it's, it's created so many conversations um that yeah i just can't move it now um so no great question and thank you for asking sharing that with us ben um so i'm going to draw proceedings to a close um i'd like to finish partly by firstly by saying that we've had a not a question in but a comment from uh, jeffrey bolland who who's actually dr bolland's son um and was that that uh, that young man that uh, visited pfizer with his dad all that time ago and and it's just a comment wow. that he has said ben thanks for your talk and for pfizer's fine contribution to managing this pandemic so just wanted to share that with you and uh, it only remains for me to to say thank you so much for giving us such a a thought-provoking and inspirational but also a very real authentic talk um, I've learned so much, but also thank you too for uh, answering all of those questions so well um, and, and being very honest with us as well about the journey that you've been on and that Pfizer have been on in the context of the journey that we've all been on over the last 18 months. So uh, thank you very much for uh, becoming part of the, the UE family tonight um, and for sharing your insights with us and, uh, and, and best of luck um, with the next stage of your journey. Thank you, Amanda. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thank you. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit ue.ac.uk slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol Lectures.